Well, it is great to be here. I had uh, numerous people come up to me today and say they're praying for me. Uh, they know that I get nervous and um, that this is a big deal. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so thankful to be here uh, in this family of God. And I'm going to quit saying things because I'll start crying and then the whole thing will be done. So yeah, this last month has been pretty crazy. Um, we moved out of our condo. Uh, we've sold almost all of our stuff. Carrie mentioned at the uh, missions dinner the other day, except for our dishes, uh, because I really love our dishes, and so I couldn't sell them. So we have them boxed up in her parents' house. Um, but it's been a crazy month. Uh, we, this next month, we're going to be uh, going to Florida for some missions training with our mission partner, Pioneers. After that, our family will be move or not moving, will be going to Los Angeles uh, for a visa interview so that we can go to France. Uh, next year, 2014, we will be moving to France to learn French. Uh, that's the trade language of the country in North Africa that we are moving to. Uh, we already learned Arabic the last time that we lived there from 2005 to 2008. Then the rest of November and in December, we will be uh, saying our goodbyes to family and friends. Uh, our family, uh, families live in Clovis and in Las Cruces, and so we'll spend some time there too. Um, these coming months, you can pray for our visa. Uh, we're, we're hoping to get a visa from the French consulate, uh, and we're going to be there in the middle of uh, November. Hopefully, they'll let us into their country. Um, you can pray for our daughter, Nellie. Um, she's our five-year-old, and she's having a tough time processing uh, that we're moving and that we're going to be speaking in French. The other night, as I was putting her to bed, she asked, uh, Daddy, when we're in our home, can we talk in English? Um, I don't know if I can talk to you in French. And I was like, yes, we can talk in English in our home. Uh, but she's having trouble understanding how this all works, so pray for her heart. Uh, and we're, we're trying to rent out our condo. Uh, have had some bites, but it hasn't, hasn't worked yet, and we're going to be selling our cars, so you could keep that in prayer. Well, why don't you turn to uh, Luke 12. Tonight, we're going to be reading from, excuse me, I said Luke 12, I mean John 12. We're going to be reading from John chapter 12. I recently heard that um, my favorite science fiction novel, uh, maybe my favorite fiction novel, will be uh, a major motion picture here in, uh, actually on Friday, it's going to be it's gonna be coming out on, on Friday. It's a book written in the mid-80s, mid uh, it's called Ender's Game. Uh, a few years ago, we were in North Africa, somebody gave me this book, and uh, right before we went on a trip to Germany, so they gave me this book, and I get on the plane, and... I start turning, and after the first page, it's just, I mean, a page turner. I, I didn't talk to Carrie for those three hours that we were flying. I didn't talk to her in the cab ride that, until we got to the conference, and I stayed up that whole night reading this book. It was the best fiction book I've ever read. Well, it's also one of those books that you're completely blindsided by when you get to the end, and you think, how, how did I miss this? What, what happened here? Um, maybe it's a function of reading through the night and I just didn't, I wasn't able to uh, see it and I was so dulled, my senses were so dulled or maybe it's just that I'm so dulled that I didn't see all of these 
clues and markers that the, the um, author was giving. Or maybe it's just that the author was so good at his craft that he put in all of these clues and made them look like ordinary details. And I think that was the case. Um, of course, after reading the book and seeing the ending, I had to go back and reread it, and I looked at, and I saw all, all of these things that were pointing to what was happening at the end, but I just missed it on the first time. Well, you all know this, that, that we have this, we belong to this transcendent God that has given us his word in, in human words. He's, he's communicated to us in human words. Over 66 books and over multiple authors and over multiple centuries, he has put this book together, a transcendent God that, that, that is condescending to us and given us this book. And he has so established it in history that there are characters and there are people, actual people that he has used and, and phrases that he uses in the book and, and, and themes over this whole book that point to what we believe is the culmination of the book and that is Jesus, right? So, I say that because I, I was thinking of Ender's Game this week and thinking of, of this sermon and how we're going to be looking over the, the entirety of the Bible and then just to say, let's reread the Bible and reread the Bible. And, and by the help of the Holy Spirit and by hard work and by standing on the shoulders of the people before us, we can see these things in Scripture that God has laid out for us and, uh, and just marvel again and again at how great God is and the plans that he has had from the beginning of time. Well, our text starts at John 12, 20, but I want to read, uh, first read verse 23, from which we get tonight's sermon title. Verse 23 reads, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And before we read this whole text, I'd like to use this, this um, device that, that John and that Jesus use in the, the Gospel of John, this whole, this phrase, the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. Because John uses that throughout the Gospel of John, and Jesus uses it by saying it. And maybe we can give some context to this passage by following that through the book of John and then landing at our passage. But before we do that, uh, before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we want you to be magnified. We want Jesus to be magnified in our hearts. I want my heart to be affected by what we read tonight so that, so that in my heart and in all of our hearts, we can magnify Jesus and, and see Jesus for who he is so that, see you for who you are so that we would hate sin and that we would love you more. Do that in our hearts. Reveal yourself to us now as we, as we dive into your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there are four times that this phrase appears in John's gospel prior to the passage that we come to in John 12. You don't need to turn to all these passages as I go through them. You can if you like, uh, but I'll just be giving a quick synopsis of each one of these events. The first instance is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 2. So Jesus has called his disciples, but he hasn't done any public ministry yet. He hasn't done any public miracles. And he's invited to this wedding at Cana. His mom goes with him. Uh, they're at the wedding, and his mom comes up to him and says, uh, 
there's no more wine. And Jesus responds with what I, I find to be a perplexing response. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, again, a curious response to his mom. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That probably deserves its own sermon, and I'm not going to try and tell you what all that means. But what we can draw from that is Jesus sees that there is an hour coming, and he's got some, some things to do. There are some things that need to happen before that hour comes. There's an hour coming in the future. The second time this phrase appears is in John 4. You're familiar with this passage in John 4. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, comes to the, to the well, and there's a Samaritan woman there at the well. And he starts talking to the Samaritan woman and supernaturally telling her things about her life that, that no normal human being would know. And he's revealing to her, revealing himself to her by asking her questions that, that are just penetrating. And, you know, she's trying to figure out how to respond to this. And, and she says, well, you know, we Samaritans, we worship on this mountain over here. And you Jews, you, you worship on that mountain over there. And, and Jesus responds and saying, hey, the hour is coming where the physical place of worship, that, that's going to be irrelevant. In verse 23, he says, that hour is coming and is now here. And in that hour, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It won't matter about the place. It's about what's happening in the heart. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So this hour, the hour that was already there and the hour that is coming, is going to change the way that we worship to where it doesn't matter where it is. It's something in our hearts, right? There's an hour coming where that will happen. The third time this phrase appears is in chapter 7. Here Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's coming up to uh, a feast that's happening, the Feast of Booths. He goes to the temple, starts teaching there, and the people are marveling at, at his teaching. And the, the leaders of the Jews are already are not liking what he's saying and hearing about what he's doing and not liking him. Uh, and he knows this. He knows that they have this intention to kill him, that there's this idea floating around about him. And he says some things that further incite their rage. In chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, he says that the Father has sent him and that they don't know the Father. Imagine saying that to the leaders of, the, of Judaism in that day. They don't know the Father, but the Father has sent him. He says that he knows God and that he comes from God and that God sent him, surely enraging them. And in verse 30, John says, so they're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So here we learn there's an hour coming where something's going to change big for Jesus. This hour is coming, maybe an arrest. Something's changing at this hour when it comes. And the fourth and final time before we get to our text, this phrase appears is in chapter 8. Jesus is still teaching in the temples, again saying statements that the Pharisees could not bear to hear. He says to the Pharisees in verse 21, you know neither me nor my father. Of course, that's that's really going to make them angry. That Jesus says that he is the son of God, that God is his father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And again, John says these words in verse 22, that he spoke as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Again, 
this hour mentioning this arrest. Something is going to be changing. John is cluing us in on how significant this hour will be. This hour will set off a new trajectory in Jesus' life and ministry. Well, after uh, chapter 8, Jesus continues to do miracles, culminating in the miracle of Lazarus, okay? You guys know the story of Lazarus. Uh, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, he's, he's sick. People come to Jesus say, hey, Lazarus is sick. The one that you love, Lazarus is sick. Come and help him. And uh, Jesus doesn't go. Lazarus dies. He goes into the tomb. Uh, Lazarus is in the tomb for four days. And Jesus comes on the fourth day, says, open up the, um, open up the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. And as you can imagine, when Jesus shows his power over death, there's a frenzy. There's a frenzy of people that want to come follow him now. And there's also, from the Pharisees, a plan to put him to death because he's gaining way too much popularity. So in chapter 11, verse 53, um, it says, from that, from that time on, after Lazarus' resurrection, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus knew this, and it says that he no longer walked among the Jews. This is a turning point in the gospel. From this point on, Jesus is set toward Jerusalem where his hour awaits him. Chapter 12 starts off with Jesus coming back into the, um, out into the open because he's heading into Jerusalem. He's going up to the Passover feast. So he's coming into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. Everyone's like, Hosanna, Hosanna, the, the Christ, the Messiah is coming in. And there's these crowds following him that have heard about Lazarus. They've heard about Lazarus and that this guy has power over death. And among those people are some Greeks, okay? Greeks coming up to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover feast. Greeks would not have this heritage of going up to Jerusalem and worshiping at the Passover feast, but there are Greeks there. And that's where we find ourselves in John 12, 20. So let's read John 12, 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, 
We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. We can see from this text and the other ones prior that the hour John is talking about is the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. What is the hour that Jesus and John have been anticipating? It is what is now moving like a freight train and cannot be stopped. It is this time period of Jesus is going to the cross He will be crucified and he will be buried and raised again on the third day and exalted. That's what this hour is, the hour that has now come and it cannot be stopped. Jesus has accepted it and knows that it is where he must go. But the next question is why? Why has the hour come? Why do we have an hour like this? Well, we can answer that pretty easily because Jesus tells us in verse 27 and 28. He says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's why this is happening. Father, glorify your name. It's to glorify God's name. Okay, but how does it glorify God's name? How does does that make sense that the Son of God would die and that would somehow glorify God's name? Why would Jesus see his journey to the cross as a means of glorifying God's name? I don't think that makes sense initially. But I see two large reasons why that is. This time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation glorifies God in that it reveals God's glory in Jesus. Do the Jews already glorify God? Did the people around him already glorify God and think God was great? Of course they did. But what this will do is glorify God in Jesus. It magnifies Jesus and shows that Jesus is God and glorifies God. Here in the cross is the greatest reversal we could ever ponder. Jesus, God the Son, one of the Trinity, leaves his heavenly dwelling as creator and enters the world as a creature, a human. Not only only that, but now we are at the lowest point, the most humble point of his earthly time where the creation is rejecting the creator. Not only are they rejecting him, they are killing, they're going to kill him on a cross. But it is in this lowest point that God's glory shines most brightly. Consider God's love. That he would send his only son, think John 3.16, he would send his only son to die this death. That whoever would believe on him would have eternal life. Glorifying God through the person of Jesus, this happens most acutely and at its highest point in the death of Jesus. But also, consider God's judgment of sin in the death of Jesus on the cross. We, the rebellious race of Adam, reject God from being our king. We do it, every one of us, every person that's ever lived. We reject God as our king 
We all deserve death and condemnation for that. Imagine the creator and the creation, the creation saying no to the creator, we rightly deserve death and condemnation. But God, in his love, sends Jesus to take that punishment on behalf of those who would trust Jesus. The, the accusation might come, you Christian, you get to go to heaven, I know you. You sin, you sin against God, I know you. You get to go to heaven, God isn't just. Think about David and all the things that he did. God isn't just if he lets David into heaven. Well, God does punish sin. He doesn't pass over Christian sin because they go to church or because they say that they believe in God. He passes over Christian sin because he poured out the punishment that we deserve on Jesus. Oh, what love, right? What, what justice that God would pour out his wrath on his only son for those who would trust in Jesus. Glory be to God. Another reason that Jesus would view this hour of him going to the cross, the death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus as glorifying God's name is given in verse 32. Again, he says, or he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He says that in this death, he will draw all people to himself. More people coming to the throne results in greater glorification of God. That makes sense. Jesus is drawing worshipers around the throne by this time period that is coming up, this hour that is now starting. In fact, he says he will draw all people to himself. All people, how can that be? It, surely it doesn't mean every single person that ever lived or every person alive at that time, all people. Well, we know it can't mean that because just a few verses later in verse 49, he says that he will judge those who reject him. Now, Jesus, what he's doing now is giving an indirect answer to the question that brought this whole thing up anyways. Do you remember back in verse 20? It says there are some Greeks who come up to worship at the feast, and they want to see Jesus. They want to talk to Jesus. And the disciples don't know what to do. So they, they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, what's up with this? And then Jesus starts this whole talk and now he answers it and he says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So disciples, you don't need to worry about this anymore. All people will come to me now. I am drawing all people, Greeks, people outside of ethnic Israel, everyone. I'm drawing all people to me. Was this news was this news to the disciples and to the, to the Jews that were in the crowd at that time? It may have been a surprise. It could have been a surprise to them. But it wouldn't have been a surprise because the pieces weren't there. It's not a surprise because somehow it was never talked about. No. If, if the disciples and the Jews of that time had known their Old Testament and had known it was soft hearts given by the Holy Spirit, they could see that this was God's plan all along. So let's look back. Let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Here God is calling a new people to himself. So the Bible starts out with Adam and Eve. God creates Adam and Eve. He's creating this humanity. Adam and Eve reject God as their king, and God kicks them out of the garden, out of his presence. Adam and Eve 
create more and more people. Their progeny just get worse and worse, continue to reject God, and God wipes them out. And he starts over with Noah, creates a new humanity with Noah. But Noah turns out to be just as bad, and same with his whole family and his progeny just continue to get worse and worse and reject God. And now God is starting over with Abram with a new humanity again. But he's not going to wipe out the whole world this time. He's going to create a nation, Israel, that is to represent God to the nations and is to be a vehicle for God's glory to be seen by the nations. And so here he calls out Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and he says, Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll cause your name to be great and so you shall be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, when we just talked about Noah, we didn't talk about the tower of Babel. God wipes out everybody with a flood, starts again with Noah. Got this rebellious humanity. They're all in one place, all speaking one language. They want to make a name for themselves, so they start building this tower, the Tower of Babel. And God judges them. He takes them and confuses their languages, and he spreads them all over the earth. And right after that, we get God calling out Abram and telling him, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All of these families that have different languages all around the world, all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram, through Israel. And we find this throughout the Old Testament in the history of Israel. God is glorifying his name, making a name for himself through Israel. There are continual references to God doing things in and through Israel so that the nations will see and fear God. Consider delivering Israel from Egypt by the ten plagues, by signs and wonders so that the surrounding nations would know that there is a God in Israel. Parting the Red Sea so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord God of Israel is mighty. Giving them the blessing of wise and good commandments from God so that the surrounding nations would give glory to that God who gave them these wonderful commandments. Giving Solomon wisdom so that the nations would come to Israel and would learn about this great God. Daniel being delivered from the lion's den so that all the nations would tremble and fear before him. And Solomon, in his dedication of the temple, saying, God, when a foreigner comes to this temple, when they've heard about all of your great works and they come to this temple, hear them, hear the foreigner and grant his requests. God wants glory from all the nations. On and on the list goes. God seeking glory from all the nations And speaking of a day when all the nations will worship him. This is especially pronounced in the Psalms. Over and over, talk of the nations worshiping the one true God of Israel. One example, Psalm 22, 27, and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship, for kings belong to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Another example, Psalm 72, 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. 
May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now back to Jesus in John 12. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Final point, the hour has come. We end with what we've started with. The hour has come. Jesus has died. And God gave Jesus the punishment that we all deserve. Whoever would believe on him, trusting in his death to appease God's wrath, turning from their sin and seeing Jesus as their only hope, will be saved. Christian, keep on believing. Consider again God's great plans from eternity past. Marvel again at the God who works all things according to his plan to bring worshipers to his throne from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And to those who do not yet believe, seek him while he may be found. Seek him. Maybe as as I had when I was becoming a Christian, maybe you have a hard time with believing, can I really have faith? I want to have faith in God, but I can't. Pray to him. He will answer the request for faith. Let's pray. Glory and honor to you, God. Your ways are so much higher than ours. And we're so thankful that you have condescended to us in the the person of Jesus. That you've made a way possible for us to come to you through his life, death, and resurrection. Help our hearts to, to magnify Jesus. Help us to consider again the work that he did on the cross we may honor you, Lord, be glorified. Thank you so much for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.